If you have a Bible, you can also turn with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We are going to continue along in our uh, series through the Bible this morning. So, uh, been a few weeks. We were in Genesis and now in Exodus. So, the book of Exodus, and if you're uh, visiting with us, uh, I'm going to be leading you through. There should be a little sermon notes page in the bulletin, at least give you kind of uh, the big idea here this morning. Uh, what we're going to be going through. So uh, from time to time, I'll be saying, turn to this text, look at this passage, uh, and so forth. I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago when we began, the Bible is not a book, but it is what? Anybody remember? It's been like five weeks. I know it's been a long time. The Bible's not a book, I said. The Bible is a library. The Bible's not a book. The Bible is what? A library, a library, and we have for many, many years, uh, me and several of us who've been here uh, the whole time, 23 or so-ish years, as a church family, we've entered into this library of the Bible. We've pulled off, in those years, 22 books off of the shelf, and sometimes if you've gone to a library and you find a book that you really like, you, you just sit right there uh, in the aisle on the floor and examine uh, that book and a lot of individual pages in the book. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. Or to change the metaphor, one we probably are a little more familiar with, the Bible is a large forest with many, many trees. And we have, over many years, examined many trees, individual branches, even leaves. But there's a lot of books in this library, 66, at least in our English Bible, Lots of books, lots of trees in the forest. And so, as I mentioned before, the next year or so, we'll be surveying the Bible. Uh, one book, or sometimes maybe two books, depending uh, at a time. So, we come again this morning to another book, the book of Exodus. We began in Genesis. The rabbis call Genesis by its first word, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. Uh, this morning we begin with Exodus and the first couple of words, Wa'ela Shemot. These are the names. These are the names. Other uh, later on rabbis in in uh, in history uh, gave it a little bit of a more descriptive name, uh, and uh, sometimes the Jews call it Yetziat Mitzrayim, which is uh, departure, the departure from Egypt, and that gets translated into Greek as Exodus. Exodus. And so our English word exodus is just a Greek word, exodus. It means to come out. And Genesis and Exodus highlight for us the two great works of God. The two great works of God. What are God's two great works, brothers and sisters? Creation and what? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, we got some heresy here. All right, we got disagreement here. Creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. Those are God's two great works, creation and redemption. Genesis deals mostly, we saw, with creation. God creates the heavens and the earth in the space of six days, and he especially creates for himself a people, a people through the line of Father Abraham. Exodus now transitions us to dealing with redemption. The redemption of those people of Abraham out of slavery in Egypt. And so, just to give us a little bit of an outline, I, I know on the, on the sermon notes page there, I give you a couple of different ways to kind of slice up the pie. There's a few different ways in which we can do that. Uh, first of all, we can follow the geography of Exodus. 
and we have, uh, we have Israel in Egypt. You see that in the first 13 and a half chapters, 12 and a half chapters. Uh, then they're in the wilderness, chapter 13, the middle of that to the end of 18. And finally, most of the story happens in one place. Where's that one place? Mount Sinai. Good, Mount Sinai. Most, it's interesting. The story is a story of, of, of the exodus, the coming out, and it's a, a story of great action. But in fact, most of the material is stagnant, static, at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's a geographical way of outlining the book. We can also do so in a more thematic or theological way, and that's how we're going to follow this morning, where we see the Lord liberating his people, first of all, in chapters 1 through 18. Secondly, giving his laws to his people, chapters 19 to 24. And finally, living among his people in the tabernacle in the wilderness, chapters 25 through 40. That's how we're going to divide it up this morning. You see there uh, on the notes page. Are you ready? Exodus, right? Exodus, it's 1039. We'll see how, we'll see how we do. Exodus this morning. First of all, notice the story of God, the story of the Lord liberating his people, and that's uh, the first 18 chapters. And there's a little prologue at the beginning of that, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bible open there, Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. We, he, we, we remember from the very, very end of Genesis, chapter 50, Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph told the sons of Jacob, his brothers, that what you meant for evil against me, Joseph, God meant for good. How? By turning a slave, Joseph, into the second man in charge of all of Egypt. Why? To preserve Israel and God's own promise to Father Abraham. That's Genesis 50, verse 20. That's where our story picks up. What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. To preserve life here in Egypt so that God's promise to Father Abraham that they would be as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven, that that promise would come true. In order to get there, God had to save his people from famine. And to get them from famine into Egypt, it took the harsh providence, the sin of his brothers, Joseph's brothers, to send him into Egypt as a slave. In the prologue then, in verses 1 through 7, we hear about these people, verse 7 especially, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied so that the land was filled with them. That should echo to us in the book of Genesis. Where, what kind of language is that? Where does that come from? This language of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the, uh, the, the, this whole land. Where does that come from? The creation story. God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And now there's this echo of that language. In fact, it comes up again later on in Genesis chapter 9, remember, after the flood, when the water subsided, God then commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And interestingly, notice in verse 5, how many people went down to Egypt? Verse 5, we're told there, there were 70, I know there's, there's a textual variant, but there's 70 people there. 70 people. Again, this echoes to us the book of Genesis. All the way back in Genesis chapter number 10, there's this chapter what we call the Table of Nations. How many nations were there? Probably don't know this. It's not a very familiar passage. Nobody really preaches on that. But there were 10 nations. The Table of Nations 
uh, sorry, chapter 10 had 70, excuse me, 70 uh, nations in Genesis chapter number 10. In other words, what the writer is telling us, the Holy Spirit, through the, through the author Moses, is that the covenant people of Israel are this little house from which the whole world, all the nations of the earth, are going to be blessed. They are all going to know the Lord as God promised to Father Abraham. So that's where it begins, this great blessing of God. They are being fruitful, they are multiplying, they are filling the lands. From a small little tribe, a little household of 70, now they are filling. But yet there's a plot twist. We talk in political terms of regime change. And there was a regime change in Egypt with a king, a pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, verse 8 tells us. And this Pharaoh was very suspicious about these foreigners because they were multiplying, they were gathering, they were filling up the land. And he was, af- he was afraid that they, that they were going to then fight against him. This was an army within his land. A nation within a nation. Verses 9 and 10. Now, we can understand this, given all that's going on uh, today in the world politically and uh, all that's going on with terrorism and the fear uh, that some people have, the fear that our country is being invaded at the southern border. But don't ever forget this, loved ones. We're, we, are, we are to think as Christians. We are to have a biblical worldview. And we hear in the media that we are being invaded. Don't ever forget, brothers and sisters, I say this because we read the Bible and sometimes we take verses out of context and we, and we like to, 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 to read them uh, in these kinds of ways. I, I just heard uh, a very popular uh, conservative speaker uh, give a speech and said that uh, uh, the reason why Cain killed Abel be- uh, was socialism. And a crowd of pastors, I was invited to this pastor's group, it wasn't here but somewhere else, all these pastors get invited to these kinds of things and the speaker said, you know, socialism was the reason why because he wanted his brother's stuff. That's what socialism does, and socialism kills. We can read the Bible through political eyes at times. And I want to remind you as we come to this story here that this Pharaoh is, 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 is afraid because his people are gathering in his country. They're at, they've, they've gone beyond his border. Uh, they are going to uh, start a war uh, with his people. Don't forget that our forefathers, your forefathers, your foremothers in the faith were the others, were the outsiders. Were the foreigners, were the immigrants in Exodus. And the Lord, in fact, goes on to remind the Israelites in Exodus 22, saying this in verse 21, You shall not wrong a sojourner or or, or oppress him. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, the Bible's not a right-wing Bible, okay? Uh, And I'm sorry to break the news. If you have that, uh, that Americana Bible that has the American flag on it, it has like the George Washington prayers and whatnot, The Bible is not an American book. It's not a right-wing book. I'm sorry to break the news. I think you know that, but I'm sorry to tell you. Later on in Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Israelites that God executes justice for the fatherless, the widow. He loves the sojourner. He gives food to him and clothing. And so therefore, we are to love the sojourner, he says, therefore, because you, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Back to our story. Back to our story. I just had to say that. I saw this stuff pop up and uh, these kinds of verses get ripped out of context all the time. The Pharaoh, though, acts like the seed of the serpent. Remember back in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent battles against the seed of the woman. Satan versus Christ. 
uh, uh, Satan and all his minions against the people of God. The Pharaoh here acts like the seed of the serpent. He enslaves the Israelites with back-breaking work, chapter 1, verse 11 and following, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman from ever even being born with his national infanticide program to drown all male Israelites in the Nile. Now, in response, amazingly, the Hebrew midwives feared God. So the Pharaoh tells these midwives, every time a a Hebrew woman is about to give birth, if you see that it is a boy, you are to kill the boy. How? By drowning him in the river Nile. The Nile was a god, and so it was sort of an offering to their god, one of their gods. But the midwives feared God. Chapter 1, verse 17, they refused to destroy life, but they protected it. They protected it. One of these little boys, the ESV says, uh, chapter, chapter number 2, uh, notice there, uh, verse number two. One of these little boys who was born, the ESV says, was a, quote, fine child, a fine child. The NASB says he was beautiful. The, the Hebrew term is tov, tov, which is simply translated as good. God saw the things he had made and it was good, tov. His beauty, his handsomeness, even as a little baby, was a sign from God that he was set apart. In fact, later on in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr of the, of, the, of the New Covenant church, said that this meant that he was acceptable to God. Moses was, because he was a beautiful child. He was tov. He was good. And so Moses is raised in his own house. He's hidden away. But when it comes to the time where he's no longer able to be hidden away anymore, his mother puts him in what? We are told there, Uh, that she makes this little basket, verse 3. That little word basket there in in our ESV, verse 3, basket, is teva. You don't know what that means, but uh, some of us do. It's an ark. He was put in an ark. This word's only used in two different places in the Old Testament Bible. In Genesis like 6 through 9, the ark, and here. Moses was put into a little basket ark. And the Nile River that was to be the place of death to Hebrew boys now became the place of its own salvation. God was sending a new Noah to create a new people to save them from their slavery. But the problem was their salvation was going to have to wait 40 more years. 40 more years. What happened? At the end of chapter 2 we read that Moses when he grew up and he's 40 years old Uh, He goes out and he sees an an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he rises up and he slays the Egyptian and he buries the body. He saves an Israelite. And the Israelites see this. The very next day, he goes out, Moses does, into into the place where the Israelites are being enslaved and working. And now he sees two Israelites fighting and one is about to kill another. And he says, brothers! And of course, you know the story. Are you going to do to us like you did to the Egyptian yesterday? They rejected him. They rejected him, at least temporarily. Moses then goes out into the wilderness for 40 more years, into the wilderness of Midian. He went there not because of his own sins, but because of the sin of the Hebrews who rejected him. Their salvation had to wait 40 more years. But notice the end of chapter number 2. 
There's this beautiful, beautiful little story, though. Although it was going to take so many more gener- uh, generations, so many more decades, we read that during those many days the king of Egypt died, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. That's what prayer is, sort of metaphorically. It goes up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God knew. He reminds us in the story that although it was going to be 40 more years of slavery, God knew. God was there. Chapters 3 and 4, we have here then the call of Moses. Chapters 3 and 4 are the call of Moses. And one day as a shepherd, he's there keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and we read that he sees this bush on fire. Verse 2 tells us, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush, the burning bush, as we called it. Yet, strangely enough, the fire did not consume the bush. Now, where else so far in our story of the Bible, where else has God appeared to someone as fire? Where else? Can you remember that in the Old Testament in Genesis? Where else did God appear as fire? to Father Abraham when he made his covenant with Abram. Genesis 15, the smoking fire pot. The smoking fire pot. God passes through those animal sacrifices like a flame of fire in a cloud of smoke. And here again is this fire imagery for God, his holiness. And notice that the, the, the bush is not consumed because God needs nothing God needs nothing, and so he himself is like a flame of fire, but yet he does not need anything to keep that fire going. And so he calls Moses. He says, Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. This is a refrain that the Bible. God often calls people twice. He uses that double name, and then there's always a response, here I am, Lord, send me, or something like that. And so God called, the Lord calls out, Moses, Moses. And he replies, here I am. And then the Lord proclaims who he is, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The gospel is here. The good news is here that God is now going to do something. God is now going to intervene. There's this gap between chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3 of 40 years. And God knew, and it took 40 years, though, for him to appear to Moses in the burning bush. But yet God says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Good news. And God says, I will send you, verse 10. Moses, Moses, here I am. I'm going to send you. All they've been longing for. They've been groaning. Their cries have been coming up to God, chapter 2 tells us. And now the time comes, and what does Moses do? Like a holy saint. Like a man that we are just to aspire to, dare to be a Moses. To follow after his pristine example. 
The Lord says, I am God, the God of the covenant, the God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like I appeared as fire, I'm appearing to you, and so I'm going to send you back to these people that you once tried to save, but yet they kicked you out. I'm going to send you back. I've heard their groanings, I've heard their cries, and you're going to be my savior. What does Moses do? Five objections. Five objections. Look at verse 11, objection one. Who am I? Who am I? That's what we all ask ourselves at times. Who am I? What does the Lord say? Look look at verse 12. I will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. Okay? Objection answered. I will be with you. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the burning bush, I'm going to be with you. What else do you need? I will be with you. Objection two. But if they ask me, If they ask me, well, what's this God's name that's appeared to you? What am I going to say to them? You mean other than the God of your fathers has appeared? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So the Lord answers that very famous verse, verse 14, I am who I am. I am who I am. It means what I was to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to be that very same God to you, Moses, and to all the Hebrews, And I'm always going to be this God. Yes, it speaks of God's eternal existence, his eternality, but it's more than just that God's eternal. It's that God, as the eternal God, is therefore constant towards his promises. He's faithful to himself. If we deny him, he cannot deny himself, the Apostle Paul says. So Lord, you're going to send me and you're going to go with me, but if they ask who you are, what am I going to say? I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Objection three. Look, it's, it's still not getting through. Like Moses is pretty thick. Uh, his ears are pretty, pretty closed up. They will not believe me or listen to my voice. Verse, chapter four, verse one. They're not going to believe. They're not going to listen. So the Lord answers by giving Moses three signs. He gives him a staff that's going to turn into what? The snake. Good. Remember, he picks it up by, how does he pick it up? When he throws it on the ground and turns into a snake, how does he grab it? By the tail. Why is that so important? If you've, if, I don't have a pet snake. I never want to have a pet snake. I refuse to have a pet snake in our house. But if you have a pet snake in your house, uh, I'm assuming that you don't pick it up by the tail. Why not? It'll probably bite you, right? So that's the dangerous way. And that's, that was a sign. You pick it up by, by the tail, and all of a sudden, it's a staff again, right? It's a, it's a stick. So there's this stick, the staff that turns into a snake and then turns back into a staff when he picks it up by the tail. Then Moses takes his hand and he puts it into his, uh, into his cloak and he pulls it out. What happens to his hand? It's leprous, right? It's like this rash on it. And then he puts it back in and he does what? Pulls it out. What happens to it? Just an old magician's trick, right? Just pulling the rabbit out of the hat. That's all he's doing. No. He's, he's given this disease that later on the Bible says is going to make him unclean. Puts it back in, it's healed in an instant. And then he's going to take some water, and God says, take the water into Egypt before the Pharaoh and all his magicians. Pour the water out on the, on the dirt. What happens to it? On the, on the sand, what happens to it? Turns into what? Turns into blood. Turns into blood. Who am I? I'm going to go with you. What do I tell them about who's going with us? I am who I am. They're not going to believe me. I got some signs for you, Moses. 
I'm not eloquent. That's his fourth objection. Now, don't forget that Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that he had the greatest education he possibly could have. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. End of tongue, verse number 10. Again, the Lord tells him by asking him a series of questions. Who made the mouth? Who made the tongue? And again, he says, I will be with you. But then he he does it again. Chapter 4, verse 13, a fifth objection. Please send someone else. He shouldn't have said it at the very beginning. Right? That's really what he was getting at. You know, ah, who am I? You should have just said what you really believed, Moses. Please send someone else. You know, I've already tried. I, I took out this Egyptian who was trying to kill a Hebrew, and, and, and then I split up two Hebrews who were fighting. I've already tried with these people. Please send someone else. And what does the Lord do? He gives him Aaron, his brother, to be the voice of God. So God goes with Moses and Aaron into the Pharaoh. And this led to a war. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. 12, verse number 12. We read that the Lord's judgments, after he, after he gives all the plagues, and then there's this final plague of uh, the death of the firstborn son, uh, the Lord speaks of his judgments as coming upon all the gods of Egypt. All the gods of Egypt. The whole of chapters 5 to 13, this whole lengthy sequence of Moses and Aaron, they come before Pharaoh in his, in his courtroom, in his throne room. Pharaoh then, and they say, let my people go, and so forth. They do miracles and signs. And then Pharaoh hardens his heart, sends him away, says, you cannot leave. Then a plague comes upon Egypt, only to repeat this cycle again and again and again. This was a spiritual war. A spiritual war. The water turns to blood. The frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, the darkness. These were all preludes to the tenth and final plague. The death of all firstborn in Egypt. Now, let me just pause and say, brothers and sisters, Christians, you too, we too, are called to spiritual war. Do you believe that? Doesn't sound very convincing today. Are you called as a Christian, and are we called as Christians, as the body of Christ, to spiritual war? Yes. Yes. But what's the difference between what Moses and Aaron were doing and what we do? What's the difference? I ask this because, again, uh, we live, at, this is not, should be, no shock to you, this should be no surprise to you, Sadly, unfortunately, we live in an age not only of hyperpolarization politically, but that affects us as Christians. And I see certain people who are writing and speaking and who are big on social media and, 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 all kinds, and they put up videos and so forth, and they are trying to pray. I'm just going to be honest. They're trying to pray on us, especially men, that we, are, that we might feel disillusioned, that we might feel weak, we might feel like, hey, the church is not as strong as it used to be, you know, the culture's going to hell in a handbasket. And there are certain voices out there who are making it sound 
They do it in a very coy way, but they are, make, they are speaking of Christians using violence. Christians using violence. Just think of the irony and the hypocrisy of that. Christians using violence for political ends. And I'm not an expert on what's so-called Christian nationalism. That's like the big buzzword. I know it gets used by the left against the people on the right and so forth. And, I, and we all know there's a lot, of, lot going on. But there are Christians out there who advocate some form of Christian nationalism who say, you know, we've got to, we've got to like, get Christendom back. I just saw a person put out this week, you know, we've got to retake uh, Constantinople. Now it's in Istanbul. You know, we've got to make it Christian again. Well, how do you do that in the 21st century? That's, that means force. That means force. The difference between us as New Testament, New Covenant Christians and the spiritual war that existed in the time of Moses is this. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. How do you do that? You do that not with your fists, not with guns, not with armies. You do that by prayer and by the word. Amen? Okay, so there's just a lot out there today, right? And it's, you can tell it kind of bothers me. So, uh, it's, but it's important for us. And yes, the spiritual war should save souls and convince minds and change hearts. And yes, that should, we trust and pray and believe, that has effects upon societies and upon the, uh, the outward, even the outward stuff of politics. But the answer is not the politics and it's certainly not violence. The answer is the Lord. The answer is using his means of prayer uh, and the word. So we have Pharaoh here trying to kill all the male Hebrew baby boys as he refused to let the Lord's firstborn go out into the wilderness. His firstborn is Israel. Uh, the Lord, he refused them to go out to worship. So the Lord then is going to judge Egypt. And the price of that judgment is every single firstborn from Pharaoh's very own firstborn son all the way down to the firstborn cattle. That's chapter 11, verse 5. They're all going to be taken by the Lord. But what about the firstborn of Israel? How about the firstborn of Israel? The Lord doesn't kill them. But what's the price that has to be paid in order to redeem the firstborn of Israel so that they're not killed? What's the price that has to be paid? What has to be done in the place of the firstborn sons? There has to be a sacrifice, right, of a, of a one-year-old male lamb without any blemishes. That's in chapter number 12. And so they sacrificed that lamb, and they took the blood, and they did what to the, with the blood? They smeared it on their doorposts. Why? Because the Lord said that when he passes through the land to take the firstborn sons at night, that he would see the blood and he would pass over that house. That's chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. Why? Because those people were covered in the blood. They were covered in the blood. So just as a theological thing, let me just, you know, we, if, if, if you read the Old Testament and maybe you're even just hearing this for the first time, you know, you're asking yourself, you know, well, well, why all this blood and death? Why all the guts and this gore? You know, is, is God really like that? At this point in history, that's what it took for God to teach his people that he was holy, that 
not just them, the Israelites, but all humanity are sinful. And the way for sinful human beings to be on good terms, be acceptable with a holy and righteous and just God is by means of sacrifice and substitution. All this that's going on here was pointing the Israelites, the faithful Israelites, back by faith to that mother promise that one day that there would be a seed of the woman, an offspring, a son, a child of the woman, who was going to bruise his very own heel as he stepped down and crushed the serpent's head. In other words, he had to suffer. This seed of the woman who was going to crush and triumph only could triumph through the means of suffering. We saw that in our first sermon. That's Genesis 3, verse 15. Suffering, right? Bruising has to occur. Remember when, after the Lord gave that promise, there was Adam and Eve. They were ashamed and they were naked and they were now sinful. Their eyes were open. They knew what they had done. They tried to cover themselves in fig leaves, but what did God give them instead? God, we imply, the text says, that God sacrificed some animals so that he didn't put them to death, and he covered them. He covered them. So this Passover stuff is pointing back to those ancient promises to tell the Israelites that there is one who is still to come. He's not here yet, but let me give you this tangible way of showing you what he's going to do. He's going to be sacrificed, and he's going to substitute himself in your place. There is one who did that. We know his name. His name is Jesus. He died in the place of sinners. He sacrificed himself so that you don't have to be the recipient of God's judgment and justice. That's the gospel today. That's the gospel today. And all this dramatic tension, the plagues and so forth, it all comes to a head at the Red Sea. That's in chapters 13 through 15. It all comes to a head in this great, uh, this great event of the Red Sea. And so you've got to cue your Charlton Heston at this point, right? Bring in Charlton Heston. Uh, you, those of us who are online, there's that come at me, come at me bro meme. You've probably seen that one. Uh, there's Charlton Heston holding the staff and holding his hands out and the sea is being parted and, and so forth. But here's, here's the story, right? Here's the real thing. The real, the real thing. The Passover leads to the Exodus. They go out of Egypt. The Exodus leads to a journey in which they are led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Again, that's all the way back to Father Abraham, the, the fiery cloud that passed through the sacrificial animals, the burning bush. This, this is the same God. What or who was that pillar of cloud and fire? Well, Moses tells us in Exodus 13, 19-20, it was the angel of God. The angel of God was inside, as it were, that cloud and fire. And who's the angel of God? It's the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, before he came to this earth. He was there leading and guiding and protecting. And that journey leads into the Red Sea. And that greatest of all redemptive events of the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea on dry lands. Now, if you know that Ten Commandments scene, uh, every single Easter night, uh, at least I turn it on for a few minutes before the wife tells me to turn it off, uh, there's, there's a scene in there where Moses is holding the staff and the people of God are not trusting him and he says, Behold the salvation of the Lord. And the sea then splits in two. What's wrong with that scene? What's wrong with that scene? 
Did Moses say, behold, the, the salvation of the Lord? Yes. Did Moses hold his hand and staff up and the, and, the, and the waters are split in two and there's dry land? Yes. But what's wrong with that movie scene? In the movie, if, if, you're, young, if you're too young, that's, that's, all, that's all good. But in the movie, it happens in an instance. How did it really happen? The Lord is the creator. And as the creator, he has all power and all authority in heaven and earth. He's the Lord of creation. He's the God of providence. God controls the elements. He's just shown that to the Egyptians with all the plagues, the the smoke and the fire, uh, uh, the firstborn dying, the cattle and so forth, the flies, the frogs, and, and all this stuff. God controls creation. And so to split a sea in two, it took all night. Not that God needed all night to do it, but God took all night. He sent his son to go at the beginning, at the front of the camp, protect him from the Egyptians. And all night long, what happened? An east wind began to blow and caused the path between the sea. And they passed. And they passed. The Pharaoh's armies are then drowned. A glimpse to the Israelites right then and there and to us that one day the serpent's head would be crushed just like in the Red Sea. Now, right after the scene, the Red Sea split open, and all their enemies devoured. Israel was totally sold out and on fire for the Lord. Amen? (laughs) There's no water to drink in this place. There's no bread to eat. There's no meat for us. Did you bring us out here because there weren't enough uh, graves in Egypt? Exodus 15 to 18 just illustrates what is, sadly, but really, the normal life of faith. We oftentimes take two steps forward and one step back, and other times we take one step forward, and sadly we take two steps back. Yet the Lord is right there on our side in all of our ups and downs. He says to us, of course, Jesus does, I am the bread of life, and that, that manna that was provided was the very Lord himself. And he also is described as the water that flowed out of the rock. I, uh, the rock that followed them, the Apostle Paul says, was Christ. We see this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ here, but don't miss the practical point as well. The Lord didn't at that time, at that moment, he didn't, as the Bible, as the prophet Isaiah would describe, he didn't snuff out that smoldering candle wick. He didn't snap off the bruised reed. That's the struggling believer. The Lord doesn't just snuff us out because he can. I mean, why not, right? He doesn't just snap off the bruised reed because we're so, so weak and struggling. No, the Lord is right there. He's right there with the Israelites. The Lord loves sinners. The Lord loves sinners. Well, just briefly, chapters 19 to 24 speak of the giving of the law the giving of the law. The Lord who liberated his people from Egypt didn't send them away as to be libertines, to go on their way, their merry old way. No, he gave them laws to, as a means for them to love him and love their neighbor in concrete ways. He calls the Israelites his treasured possession among all peoples, chapter 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he gives them ten commandments, that's chapter 20. These summarize all these laws, but summarizes in very concrete ways in ten of them. And then in chapters 20, the end of chapter 20 to 24, there are all these laws, all kinds of laws given that are sometimes called the book, or they are called the book of the covenant. And there's this ritual where blood was sprinkled again upon the Israelites and even upon the tablets 
as a way of confirming that they were now the covenant people of the Lord. And then thirdly, notice there the story of God living with his people, uh, chapters 25 through 40. He brought them out. He brought them out of their homes in Egypt to live in tents out in the desert. So they used to live in houses, now they live in tents, and now God is going out with them. Where does he live? In a palatial palace somewhere far off? He lives right there with them, in a tent, too, the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle all about? Chapter 25, verse 8, tells us what it's all about. It's that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's house. It's like a tent. It's right in the center of the camp. They're going in tents, he lives in a tent. They're in uh, a wilderness wandering. He's in the wilderness wandering with them. Fellowship between the Creator and Adam and Eve in the garden, in a sense, has been restored in the tabernacle. In chapters 25 to 31, there are various instructions about the tabernacle. Uh, all the various pieces of furniture in that tent uh, are, 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 are given there. Uh, there's that wooden box covered in gold that has little poles that go to the sides of it to carry it to the wilderness. We call it the Ark of the Covenant, or the Lord calls it the Ark of the Covenant. On top of it had a seat, what's called the mercy seat. We read in chapter 25, verse 22, it's there on top of that seat between the angel's wings that were embroidered or carved in gold. There I will meet with you. That, that means this little box with these poles that transport it around that has this lid that has these angels where God meets with the Israelites this is his throne. It's his throne. The tent, although it's a tent, it, it's his throne room. And so God is right there in the midst. And there's a table inside that tabernacle that has bread on it, reminding the Israelites that he, the Lord, is the one who sustained them in the wilderness with the manna. There's a large golden lampstand. We call that the menorah. It looked like an almond tree. It points back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's the tabernacle itself, and it has two rooms. There's a holy place, the first room, where all the priests would go. There's also the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, where only one priest, the high priest, could go only one day a year and only one time on that one day a year. So there was fellowship with God restored, but yet it had restricted access until the coming of Jesus. Like in the Garden of Eden, there was an entrance on the east side. So the tabernacle is meant to point back to Eden. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve are kicked out, they go east of Eden. What does God put at the very entrance of the garden? What does he put there? He puts an angel with a flaming sword, guarding and barring access. Now isn't it interesting that, the, and that's east of Eden, the entrance of the tabernacle is on the east, so you go from east to west, and also we read that there's this great veil that covers, that separates the holy from the holy of holies. And right in front of the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant is this great veil. Chapter 26, verse 31 tells us that, that on that great veil, cherubim were skillfully woven or worked into it. Just like the Garden of Eden, there were cherubim. There were angels guarding the presence of God. But God allowed one man, I mentioned, the high priest, to go in one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and to go in at one point to sprinkle the altar once. Other than that, nothing else. Until the Lord Jesus Christ, when he dies upon the cross and the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom and access and fellowship is restored. There's a bronze altar that's outside in the courtyard and all the sacrifices are given there. Uh, there's a great curtain that goes around that forms a courtyard. 
there's also an altar. Uh, there's also a, a bronze basin where their hands and feet could be washed from all their sacrificial work and the altar of burnt incense. All these pieces of furniture were all pointed, are all meant to point them to the presence of the Lord. So there are instructions, chapter 25 to 31. But before we get to the construction, chapters 35 to 40, there's this little interlude in chapter 32, 33, and 34. Moses is up on, on Mount Sinai, and he's getting all the laws that God is commanding the Israelites. But as we sometimes say, while the cat's away, what? The mice will play, right? Moses up there on Mount Sinai, he's seeing God. And they're tired of it. Up, they say. Up. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, that's chapter 32, verse 1, we do not know what has become of him. They thought he was dead. And so Aaron, Moses' very own brother, Moses' right-hand man, commands the Israelites to give them all the gold earrings that they no doubt were given by the Egyptians. And he makes and carves a golden calf. And all those leaders of the Israelites who are clamoring for this for this God, say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron even builds an altar and sets a festival day. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, he says, verse 5. What's wrong with all this? We'll just go back and read chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the first and the second commandment especially. Now the Lord tells Moses what's going on down below, and that he is going to consume them. Look at chapter 20, 32, verse 10. I'm going to consume them that I may make a great nation of you. What's the Lord threatening? To wipe them out. And to start over just with Moses. But then there comes this great, one of the greatest intercessory prayers in all of Scripture. And Moses, notice in his prayer, he's telling the Lord what the Lord already knows. One old Puritan said, that's all we do in prayer. We basically take the Bible and we hold it up to God and tell God what he's already said. That's all we're doing. Prayer is not us getting our way. It's not us twisting God's arm. It's not us tricking God with flowery words and all kinds of phrases. It's telling God what he already has said. Lord, you promised to do this. Lord, would you provide that? And that's what Moses does. That's what he does. Lord, don't do this. If you do this, the Egyptians are going to laugh at you. That... And they're going to say that you're not God. Lord, don't do this, but remember what you've said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember your promise that I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, he says in chapter 32, verse 13. Don't forget your promise that all this land that I promise is going to be yours. It's going to be ours. And what do you know? The Lord relents. The Lord relents. What an application this is for us. Did the Lord already know all this stuff? So when Moses said, Lord, don't forget your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord already knew that, right? The Lord knew that stuff already? Yes, he did, absolutely. He knew this stuff already. Did God change his mind? Absolutely not. The Lord's not a man that he should change. But he's re he reveals himself like this to draw out of Moses' faith. We learn what the Lord threatened was a means to get Moses to intercede. 
and that the Lord did not continue to work through Israel except through the intercession of Moses. As we say, sometimes in, in theological speak, God not only determines the end, right, the results, the goal, but God also determines the means to that end. God knows the end from the beginning, but God also has purposed and planned to use various means to get us to that end and to that goal. You and I serve an infinite and an almighty God who does not need us, but yet who has purposed in himself and promised to you and to me that he actually is going to use you and me to accomplish his purpose. That's how great our God is. The application, therefore, is pray. Pray. They leave Sinai. They head out towards the promised land. But the Lord speaks this disastrous word, verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 4. This disastrous word, but I will not go up among you, he tells Moses. I'm not going to wipe them out and start over with just Moses. Fine, you all are going to go. The land is yours, just like I promised it. Don't let the door hit you out, uh, hit you in the way out, as we sometimes say. I'm not going to go up with you. That's a disastrous word, the people of God call it. And so Moses intercedes again. Again. He cries out. And the text has this beautiful phrase, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was interceding in chapter 33, verse 11, in this little, this little tent of meeting that he had, just like he would be talking to a friend. That's what prayer is. And Moses pleads with his friend, the Lord. Look at verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's how important the Lord's presence is. The Lord then said he would go. And so Moses says, Lord, give me a token that you're going to go. Show me your glory. The problem is Moses can't see God and live. You can't see me, Moses, and live. No man can see me and live. The Lord then takes Moses and he hides him in this little crack in a rock somewhere. And God says, I'm going to pass by in all of my glory. But you can't see my face and live. I'm going to hide you right there. I'm going to shield you so that you don't die. But when you look, what you'll see, though, is my backside, as he calls it. And when the Lord passes by, he preaches a sermon. His very own name. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And thus they went. And the tabernacle was constructed. They built that tabernacle, we're told, in chapter 40. The first day of the first month in their second year in the wilderness. So it's been one year since the Exodus. And on year two, month one, day one, they had a New Year's celebration. They had a great one-year anniversary. And they, had a, and they had a divine fireworks display for that anniversary. Something much, much greater than we can ever imagine. Verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, 
Remember the cloud that met, that met with Abraham, the cloud that met with the Israelites in the wilderness and led them and guided them. That cloud then covered the whole tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God took residence in his tent. He enthroned himself. Verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now Moses couldn't go in because the glory was so great. But here's the wonderful gospel truth to us. That glory, that cloud, that fire, that angel of God that protected the Israelites from the Egyptians, that infinite and almighty God, that God who is the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that God has become a man. That God has come from heaven down to this earth, and we are told by the Gospel of John that the Word, the glorious God, has dwelt, he's tabernacled amongst us. So Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle to see God because no one can see God and live. But the Gospel is that God, knowing that, God then sends his Son in the form of man as a human being so that we can then access him and see him face to face. And as he says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the tabernacle. He is the cloud. He is the fire. He is the God of the burning bush. He is the glory. He is all these things. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God who redeemed the, the, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. He's the God at the top of Mount Sinai who gave and delivered his law. He's the God who dwelt, albeit in a temporary kind of a way, in a tent, and in a, in, a, in a restricted kind of a way that only one high priest one day a year at one moment could go in. But he's the one who dwelt with the Israelites as in a tent. But now he takes off all that and he puts on himself humanity. And if you put your trust in him, if you put your trust in him, he promises to save you and to redeem you from every single one of your sins. He promises to work in your heart by the power of his Holy Spirit to write his law upon your heart so that you would love God and love your neighbor in, uh, in response. And he promises to take up residence within you as a temple, as a tabernacle, to dwell in you so that you can see him and and that you can speak to him, and that you can hear him, and that you can receive from him as from a friend, face to face. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises all these things to us, and he shows all these things to us in the Lord's Supper this morning. Come and receive Christ. Receive your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to glory in you, to revel in your grace. Receive us at your table. Receive our songs and our praise and our prayers. To the glory of your name, we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.